you know, you're seeing larger players now aggregate and they're buying smaller facilities that are in rural and tertiary markets. But what that means for us is I think we're at the right place at the right time where there's a lot of uh, compression of cap rates, even in tough markets where small business people, entrepreneurs, uh, anyone that's a developer or just someone that's in storage, you know, there's a, there's a whole new opportunity where I think in this industry, you can buy an asset and actually add a lot of value, even in a competitive market. The amount of people coming into the industry has changed. And so how these new people coming into the industry, how they get into the industry, right, that is changing on their opportunity. You know, when we started out in the small facilities and for anybody that was in the game and uh, during the Great Recession, you saw what happened on the sale of those small facilities, right? They, those smaller facilities and those smaller markets, when that capital retreated, got obliterated, but it got obliterated because of the buyer. There was no institutional grade. The money was fixed to debt, and there wasn't demand for those assets, right? That's changing. Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Self-Storage Income Podcast. Today, we have a very special edition of the podcast in store for you because this is an episode we did live at the Self-Storage Income live event of 2022. We did this in front of a crowd of like 200 people with our special guest, Jeremiah Butcher, who's the founder and CEO of Patriot Holdings. They are a commercial real estate private equity company. They specialize in self-storage, manufactured housing, industrial, and have over $320 million of assets under management. And in this episode, Jeremiah, AJ, and Connor are specifically talking about investing in different sizes of storage units and what that market currently looks like, whether you're starting out or if you already have facilities. But before we get into that, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you're new here, we talk about all things self-storage, from investing to buying properties, whether you're just exploring the idea or starting out, or if you already have properties under management, this is the podcast where we help you further your investment portfolio. And leave us a honest review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. We do see those. Again, thanks so much for listening. Let's get right into it. All right, give it up for AJ, Connor, and Jeremiah. I got to think here now, it's been a few months since we had our last podcast with you on, and we, we had another one about a year ago, and uh, um, Jeremiah is one of my favorite people to have on the podcast because of his insight, his energy, um, as well as I just love him. He's just, he's an awesome guy, Thanks, and he's absolutely killing it out there and hitting a market that we've kind of talked a lot about already. Um, uh, and we really want to discuss today what's happening in the sub-markets, the smaller facilities, right, um, and how that affects the whole entire industry from top to bottom, because there's so many changes going on. Honestly, I think this is very reminiscent for me of, like, after 2008 and a lot of the changes that were being affected to self-storage with technology, right, that was kind of really, it, it was changing the way we viewed storage facilities, right? And I feel like that's happening again. And I feel like people's views are being changed and their abilities to operate and manage are changing. It's it's very much an exciting time. So thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for coming out here. We yeah, really appreciate yeah. it. 
to, to that, uh, it, it's a very exciting time, I agree, AJ, and, and this is the right room to be in because uh, I think we're seeing a transition in the, in, in the industry where you know, you're seeing larger players now aggregate and they're buying smaller facilities that are in rural and tertiary markets. But what that means for us is I think we're at the right place at the right time where there's a lot of uh, compression of cap rates, even in tough markets where small business people, entrepreneurs, uh, anyone that's a developer or just someone that's in storage, you know, there's a, there's a whole new opportunity where I think in this industry, you can buy an asset and actually add a lot of value, even in a competitive market, because you're getting now institutional buyers, you're getting larger groups, even public REITs, they're looking at us. So uh, I've been through a lot of different asset classes. I mean, I started 20 years ago, believe it or not. I mean, I think I look pretty good for being 41, <laughs> right? So I, uh, but yeah, I've been in it for a while and I noticed, you know, I was in manufactured housing. I was in, I did everything, retail, office, industrial. And, you know, there's pros and cons to every asset class, but I don't have to sell you guys. I'm, you know, you, we, you already drank the Kool-Aid from this guy because, you know, he, yeah, I read his book and I'm like, oh yeah, storage is a retail business. It's not an actual asset. It, it is an asset, the underlying asset, but the business itself is an operating retail business. And that's what caused me to really, you know, change the way I operated my own facilities. But we always, you know, banged our head up against the wall. How do you make these smaller facilities profitable? And that was, you know, with this whole advent of technology and then with COVID driving a lot of people into these tertiary markets and now with technology, you know, people adopting these behaviors, you know, it's, it's a game changer for us. And then, you know, when you and I get together, we just, we get, we get real fired up about this. Well, it's, you know, we've even seen this, we've talked about this from, you know, when you're entering into these markets and how you're looking at it, you have to look at the full cycle of the asset. And especially when you're trying to understand your returns and your performas, right? And for a, a long time, the problem that a lot of people had when they were aggregating assets was that the valuations not spread across, right? So you get this differentiating in valuation, and then you also get institutional players that they're the ones that uh, come in, we're buying those portfolios, they would be picking and choosing. And it really, it came down to with these smaller facilities. Um, and let, I guess, let me phrase this kind of here. When we're, we'll, we'll say for smaller facilities, we're going to talk 50,000 square feet and under. 50,000 to 100 square feet will be medium and then large, right? Those will be uh, 100 plus thousand. I think the average square feet feet when you blend it all together is right around 60, 65,000 right in the United States. Now that's, that's including like big boys, like 250,000 square feet mega facilities, as well as the 5,000 foot uh, uh, storage facility. And I mean, we've noticed it when we look at, okay, how are we going to build? How are we going to operate? What is our team needing to do right with this asset? How is this going to play out in this whole life cycle? Because what we do today, whether it's buying or building, right, that's going to be affected in the valuation, the cash flows, and how the industry and the markets see it through the future that we don't quite know yet. And so we're trying to prepare for that because we want to know our exit strategy. We want to know our downsides, right? We don't plan on selling, but if we're going to, we need to. One of the major reasons that everybody started to go to large showrooms well, why did people go to large showrooms and act like that retail center? Because that's what the REITs wanted. That's what they wanted. That's why people went to it. Well, because the REITs were like, hey, I need X amount of space in that showroom if I'm going to buy it. So then everybody changed their building standards, right? And so these things have a huge effect 
on the industry. But one of the other things that you know we've really noticed is the amount of people coming into the industry has changed. And so how these new people coming into the industry, how they get into the industry, right, that is changing on their opportunity because of the consolidation amongst cap rates, particularly in the large facilities, right? They're looking at these other assets and they're saying, okay, we can go down market, which anyone that listens to the podcast, we talk about this all the time. But, you know, if I wanted to get really good yield, I would not get a 100,000 square foot facility in a big market, right? That's your yield is just so much lower there you know at this point most of them are fairly optimized and the price that you pay to compete right you're you got to pay a premium that means what we have to do in that facility to get the returns we want it needs to be a lot more dramatic whereas the small facilities no there's just so much cash flow so much margin and so much opportunity on them the problem though then was the end okay well, what happened? So, you know, when we started out in the small facilities and for anybody that was in the game and uh, during the Great Recession, you saw what happened on the sale of those small facilities, right? I mean, we were having conversations w- w- with people and it was like, oh, I'll, I'll sell this to you for a 10 cap. And we laughed like, I'm not going to pay a 10 cap. What are you, crazy? Like 12 at best. You know, I mean, it was just they, those smaller facilities and those smaller markets, when that capital retreated, got obliterated, but it got obliterated because of the buyer. There was no institutional grade. The money was fixed to debt and there wasn't demand for those assets, right? That's changing. And that end part that's changing, that changes everything right at the beginning and it completely changes the landscape of what people will build what they'll buy, why they'll buy it, and what they can do with it. It's a really big change that I, I think can't be under understated for what will happen in, in the next five years. Yeah, to, to your point, AJ, completely, is, you know, Wall Street dictates a lot of patterns, especially uh, as, as a, an industry scales up and gets larger. Uh, but the small facilities, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there, right? There's a lot of mom and pops that run them because none of the big guys want to deal with them. Not a lot of competition. Recently, there's been a lot of competition. But really, I think that the, the opportunity lies where you can, even with all the competition now, you can go in there, improve these assets. There's still a good margin on them. And like AJ saying, there's an actually an exit. Like in, in the past, it's alluring when you're a new investor, you want to get into any deal you can, right, in the beginning, which is not a bad thing, you know, because you want to get your feet wet, you want to actually get some reps and understand the business. But then for me, when I started out in every asset class, I didn't have the comprehensive view of the whole picture. You know, one, not even having enough reserves in the bank to if things go wrong, but secondly, is on the exit. So, like, who's actually going to buy this at the end of the day? And that was a challenge, especially when you got smaller assets. Now things have been shifted up, and our industry is more, I would say, the flavor of, of the market right now if you look at all the other asset classes. So I think the, the, the good thing is, I mean, you still got to be disciplined, prudent in what you buy and what you can get it to. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can slide in there, wedge yourself in. And, and our sweet spot is around that forty to 70,000 square feet where we operate mostly in the Northeast. And, you know, AJ, he's in a lot of other markets than us, but we our advice from some of the public REITs when we have our conversations at, at the storage shows is 
you know, we don't want the 100,000, you know, because we, we have other towns within 30, 40 minutes away. We don't want to poach from our other facilities, you know, and we build for ourselves, but we always want to know on the exit what's out there. And they're saying, you know, the cost of releasing it up, if you have the demographics and you can get in and make it a profit off of this 40 to 70,000 square feet, keep it small, keep it nimble here so we can continue to, to not have to poach from our other facilities. And, and that's where your highest margins are going to be. But I, you know, to anyone trying to get into business, and, and what AJ and I always talk about is, you know, it, it always comes down to rates and revenue, right? The business is really revenue management. That's it's all about the income. You can only do so much on the expense side. So for us, we've been really disciplined about not getting into markets where there's low, low rents because I mean, we've had nightmares of being in uh, a, a town in northern Nevada where I, for seven years, I could not raise rents. You know, no barriers to entry. This older man just kept building. For for the fun of it, and I just I couldn't move the needle, and you know I, I just don't want to see anyone in here where you're getting six, seven, eight dollar rents annually. You know it it costs us the same to build all over the country, so there's nowhere to go. So I think we as nimble, you know, kind of smaller investors, we got to dictate where we want to be to really maximize the opportunity cost of our time. So that's that's my piece of advice for people that are trying to grow in the industry. Well, and it's a good point because we, you know we were looking at this, and we can talk about kind of when you're looking at the smaller facilities, right? What you really do is you, you, you have a, a expense to revenue problem, right? It's always an expense to revenue problem. Now, the expense to revenue problem is generally not just in operationally uh, operational expense, but it's on the capital expenditure side, right? So if you got to come in and buy that facility and you can only make $6 a year on that square foot, and you have to put in a lot of capital expenditures into that thing. Well, cap capital expenditures, I mean, what are we seeing right now in, in a range? Like, wh what do you think we're seeing right now for building, for replacements and doors, things like that? What are your thoughts? As far as a percentage? Yeah, or just, yeah, just general, yeah, like square the foot per, cost and things. Per facility? Um, That's the one question he hates. That's why I ask it. I was going to say, I just always ask him. I don't know, AJ. So, uh, so what's the price per square foot on this? He's like, I'm yeah. going to kill uh, you. You can't ask that because it depends. We need plants. We need plants. Um, it really varies. Again, I mean, we've had a lot of discussions about this recently as far as, um, you know, what's the ROI on each dollar spent on these improvements and is it going to actually have some kind of return um, because we have this issue of standardization versus ROI. You know, we want to make our facilities upgraded. We want to be able to achieve those higher rents, um, but at what cost? You know, do we keep the gravel? Do we keep the asphalt? So there's a lot of variables to that. I don't know if I could put like an actual, yeah. that's a good good data point though. I mean, we could look at that and see on average what it looks like, but it's so dynamic from facility to facility as far as what our expense ratio would look like just for the CapEx uh, siloed in and of itself. What we're at, and just high level numbers, we're always looking at what is the cost per foot on the project base cost basis. So I, I think five to 10 bucks a foot's pretty safe. So if you have a 50,000 square foot facility on that five bucks, you're at 250 grand up to, up to a half a million if you're really doing some heavy lifts. Yeah. But I think overall, you know, you, I mean, you're the guy that really got me to adopt this behavior. And I have, a, I have a Connor as well. My partner, Tim, is always on the other side. Cost too much, cost too much. Where's the ROI? I'm like, bigger, better, brighter. You know, let's make it sexy, you know? You know it's like perception is reality to the consumers, you know? So 
But at the end of the day, you know, we, we really are, are doing this, you know, every time it's the same template where, you know, paving, lighting, fencing, gating. So I'm committed to that because I think you're going to be able to command the rates over time. But then you got to be disciplined on the on buying it at the right cost basis because you got to know I'm going to put these yes. put this money back into the facility. But so we're, you know with paving alone, you know, you're going to spend two two hundred to two hundred fifty grand. You know that's the first improvement that we do right away because in the Northeast, like you guys up here, you know you can't be sitting in mud in the middle of the in the middle of the winter trying to load and unload, and then you know painting. And then getting the right vendors, you know, hopefully if you do volume and scale, your vendors are just a critical relationship. You know, we, we can get into wherever you want to go with that. Well, no, I was just going to say, I was going to ask a question. I mean, touching on these aspects, we're talking about all this new opportunity. We're talking about technology. We're talking about looking from, you know, an acquisition or a build from start to finish and what that exit looks like. Um, what opportunities and what are, what do you guys see that people should be executing on to, you know, we're talking CapEx, we're talking these improvements. What should people be doing to their facilities? All right. Uh, I mean, I, I just, I'm going to speak to what I said before, is if you could find a small operator that has 20,000 square feet, you got extra land and you can expand, I mean, that's number one. Just don't pay for the value add up front. You know, for us, it, depending on the rents, yeah, that, we cap out at about 100, everything's by the foot for us. If you want to just back, back of the napkin, easy, 100 bucks a foot really gets you in the door where if you can be in for 2 million bucks and you have decent rents where you're at $12 or more on your street rates, that, that works for us yeah, I mean, for the most part. And, and the, the main focus is get you to 50,000 feet. Get that, that, that institutional quality asset. And then the flip side is if you got the stomach for it, you know, the, really the way to go is, is building right now. Your replacement cost is a lot less than the existing cost in the marketplace. You know, I think in the next five to ten years, you know, we've seen a lot of guys come up in this industry uh, where they just they just place money, and they're just placing money on assets, and, and they get fees. You know, we both have funds, so they get fees based on how much money they place, and the incentive is not aligned. Where you know, really, you make your money on the back end for for really producing a lot of profits for your investors and creating a project, creating value rather than extracting it from the market. So if you guys, you know, I think a great thing to do is know your local markets, understand where it's undersupplied, and then, you know, build 50,000 square feet. If you could go SBA, that's great. There's a lot of opportunity in that because, you know, over the life of the asset, why, why like everyone in here, you know, it looks like you're on the edge of your seats to talk about storage. Like, how ridiculous is that? You know, I'm sure your wife or, or your, your partner is like, uh, you know, storage, that's, that's stupid. And then everyone's, you know, this is it. But it's a, it's a great asset class. And the reason being is because, you know, no CapEx, right? You do it right the first time, 20 years in, you know, we've, I'm sure everyone in here has invested in some other piece of real estate. I mean, just apartments. And I was in manufactured housing. I mean, you just feed it and feed it and feed it. And you're like, when am I going to get the actual money out of it? You know, and storage was the first thing, you know, when I started buying it and then reading your book, I'm like, okay, now this is predictability. Like I actually can take it to the bank. So that was that for me, you know, even if you have to be patient, you know, and take three years for your lease up, you know, and know your market. Don't go, don't go in an oversaturated market. Don't chase trends and what everyone else is doing. Really find the markets where you got good demographics. Follow the program you say, and then don't think about okay, I got to sell it right away, make all this money. I mean, this is if you want it, it's generational wealth. You know, that this is this is what is great about this asset class. So I'd say go in that direction rather than overpaying for an older piece of junk in just because it's in Texas or Florida because everybody's investing there. 
and and I want to hear what he has to say. I no, I, I could not agree more with that. I mean, we, when you look at it, you know, spot on. You know, I always say, you know, we buy on performa, we just don't pay for it. So, you know, you got to look at it, that spread that's coming up. And, you know, we've been working on literally this, this morning a deal, and it was like the cost and the increase of expenses and capital, everything else like that. We, we're now we we're looking at going, okay, we now have to buy on pro forma, meaning that if that pro forma doesn't work, this deal doesn't work. And it's like, that's not how it that's not how it works. Like, you need to be able to buy the deal. The deal should pay me while I create value, right? Remember, like, my margin of stupidity and what we're looking for. It's, but over the last two years, sellers have come to expect people to buy off of Proforma as if it had already occurred and happened. And that's, that, that's a dangerous, dangerous game to be playing, especially in markets right now. And so when we look at, all right, our strategies and what we're doing, you, you have these large expenses, you have CapEx, right? You have to hold your debt. You need to make sure that it can survive for that long period of time. Like is it, Whether you sell it or not doesn't matter. But if you need to sell it for it to make it work out, now is the time that that's scary, right? Now that worked for the last 10 years, but just because it worked didn't mean it was because of the person that it worked for. It's just because cap rates compressed, which that didn't have anything to do with you, me, or anybody else, right? It was nobody knew, nobody knew if it was gonna happen or not. For all of us that it happened, it was, it's awesome, right? We, it's like, great, we all lucked out, we got this huge amount of money, right? But you can't expect those things to keep going. So when you're looking at uh, whether it's rural markets, whether you're, you're looking at smaller facilities, right, or big facilities, that fundamentals and improving that value, um, that's really important, but understanding those inputs. So when we're talking about, you know, okay, I need to put 250000 into it. A lot of people buy it, they're like, it cash flows, but then all of a sudden, I've got to put $10 or $15 a square foot into this thing, and I only paid, you know, 50 bucks a square foot, now all of a sudden, uh, it doesn't cash flow anymore when I add all these things in. And what is the top right of the, those rates? That's a big thing that we look at and we want to know. So when you're in those markets and when you're in smaller facilities or smaller markets, you got to be careful with you don't get stuck on the assumption that either rates will go up or I can achieve a certain rate that is unknown, right? Because, you know, kind of like your example, all of a sudden you were in, you know, northern Nevada and you're like, I... I, I can't lift rates. I, I can't get them up. And then it's, you know, it's not like it hurts you or anything, but it was just like it was a lot of waste of time. Yeah. Right, good experience, yeah. but all of a sudden you're sitting years later going, geez, I, what am I doing here? I got to get rid of this thing. And there's a lot of landmines out there right now, right, yes. for everybody. So especially you guys underwrite tons of deals. We do too. So right now brokers are getting creative, right? So there's a lot of sellers are going with brokers. They want to maximize their, their price. And we're seeing a change in the market. I'm sure you guys can speak to it too. And just a little bit less competition, a lot of retrading. You know, everybody heard of the rent, uh, the rate increase yesterday with the Fed. So for what we're seeing is where they're getting super creative is with the aggressive rent increases over the last two years, where any any dummy could have bought something and made money, and now we all look like geniuses. So you get out there, and these these proformed packages are like you know there's 40% economic vacancy where you know you can achieve a 14 or 15 dollar rent annually. 
you know, and, and on paper, okay, there's a lot of upside here, right? I can get my cash on cash up. I can get the, you know, the, the stabilized cap rate or unlevered yield. I can get that to, you know, eight, nine, ten percent. But it, but it's all fake. You know, you can't, you can't increase. It's rents. on a spreadsheet. It is, yeah, exactly. So you know, and if you know the inputs, I mean, there's very few. I, I see your guys' spreadsheets. It, you know, it blows my mind. You just you're digging into you know sheet after sheet after sheet. But at the end of the day, there's you know less than a handful of inputs, and one of those inputs is really it's it's what's your actual gross operating income. So you have your gross projected income, and you can have street rates, and this is what the REITs are great at, right there. They're great at putting you know, rates out there at 20 bucks a foot, but there's a million concessions, right? You could do get them in the door, which is a great strategy. Get them in the door, lock them up, get all their stuff there, and this is the beauty of our business, right? The pain in the ass factor, like I don't want to lose, I don't want to leave. You know, so just get them in, lock, but give a ton of concessions, do whatever you have to do. So your actual rents, your gross operating income, your real rents that you collect, you know, they could be way less than what the broker's projecting on there. So for us, it's like we're seeing in the market What's true stabilized value? What's your true stabilized income? And we're discounting it 15 to 20%. And these are in good markets because now we're seeing people, they're, they're taking less square footage. They want more concessions. We're competing a lot more. Delinquency is a little bit higher. So I think for everyone in here, the landmines are, you know, don't obviously don't take the broker's package for, for being, you know, gospel. But you want to really build in a big buffer because what AJ said, and this is the opportunity, I think, across the board for all asset classes in, in real estate, is this underwriting where, yeah, cash flows today, you bought it. You got your 7 8 10% return on your money, your cash on cash. But there's no room for the adjustment. Everything has gone up. Everything's done well the last 10 plus years. So now we really get into who, where do the operators shine? You know, what, where do the, the strong survive? And you guys built a massive management infrastructure. We built one, and we don't, we don't even like it. I mean, it's just, this is, operations is the worst. Anyone you can find in here that'll operate for you, that, that, that you enjoy talking to, or even if you don't enjoy it, just connect with them and just say, I will pay you whatever it is to operate it because that's the tough part of the business. But that's where the money's made, and that's where the data is, right? That's where you guys, and that's, that's what the REITs are really doing. They're, they're aggregating data. You know, that's, that's their big value over the life of their, their companies here. So, and we can get into what the REITs are doing, but I think that the, just be really careful on your underwriting because you have to have a margin for error. I mean, right now, uh, storage, you know, and when people say, is storage good or bad? I mean, it's so geographically driven, you know, and you know your markets in and out, know your competition, and then really build in there, I would say 15 to 20% for concessions, vacancy, credit loss, these things are, that's, that's the stuff that gets you to that safety zone where you, like, like AJ said, you don't get, you're not buying on that pro forma for the exit because you might be the last guy, you know, standing with this asset and you can't even cover your debt. And then if lending gets real tight, you know, then now they're looking at your covenants, the bank doing their quarterly uh, evaluations and you're not even meeting your debt coverage ratio, your one, two, five or your one, three debt coverage. And that's, that's when this whole thing comes. And, and we, I know you and I, we're waiting for defaults. You know, we, there hasn't been a default on storage in, I don't know, decades, right? So it's, but, but it's coming because some of this is unsustainable. Just, you can't just buy in a market that has 20 square feet per person and everyone's going to move there and it's just going to fill up. I mean, that, but that's going on right now. One of the best ways to increase value of your storage facility is to integrate tech to improve operations, right? So Janus International actually has their no-key technology. It's a keyless access entry system that allows not only the access and entry to the gate, to the building, to the unit, 
it allows tenants to, and potential tenants to actually come in and rent a unit online, right? They can access online, see what units are available, rent the unit, access the building, the unit, everything straight from their phone without ever having to go to the office, which is an incredible amount of value for so many people and that user expectation that people have in today's marketplace. Again, Janus International, their Noki system, be sure to check that out. Link is in the show notes. It doesn't matter what part of the cycle that we're in, guys. Development is always going to be an amazing opportunity for you guys. And look no further than Forge Building Company to be your building partner at your development project. Forge is one of the leading self-storage contractors in the country. They're building nationwide. And just in the last 15 years, these guys have built over 60 million square feet in storage, which is totally insane. That's a ton of storage, guys. Uh, And that's over 500 projects. So again, nationwide, these guys have just killed the self-storage game. They know self-storage. They can value engineer like nobody's business and save you tons of money. Be sure to check out Forge Building Company. It's, it's been going on for a while too. And, you know, when you look at a lot of these uh, performers and these inputs, one of the things that people don't realize is when you're in the spreadsheet and you're putting inputs to all the things that will go up, right? It looks really good. And then when they adjust it or stress test it to look at the downside, we, all they do is move rates. But that's not actually how it works. And we saw this during the Great Re- uh, Recession. There was a deceleration of not just re- rents, uh, but overall gross income. And what that meant was you were giving concessions, right, to get people in. And then your overall rent was lowering. And then people were not paying. And then you were having to auction and you weren't making money on that. They stopped buying insurance. They stopped buying products. So all of a sudden, you had a 10% drop in gross revenue just due to the rates, right? Like, okay, we used to be at 100 bucks. We're now at 90 bucks. But then when you included all the other decelerations, you included the people that aren't moving out, they're not paying, you include the income loss, you include the ancillary stuff, you're not getting your sign-up fees anymore, all of a sudden it was another 10%. So when they stress tested it, that drop in rates, oh, even if rates soften by 10%, you know, we're, we're still okay. Not realizing, though, deceleration doesn't happen like that. It doesn't work as a line item on a spreadsheet. The gross revenues impact is very dynamic, just like it is when it goes up, just like it is when you add in those extra incomes and you see how that explodes the value. And wow, just adding insurance premium, I got all this money, right? It also decelerates the other way. So vacancy that leads to lower rates leads to more uh, defaults, leads to bad debt leads to all of these other things. And then it has a major widening spread on that gross revenue. So what looks like was happening, and I talk a lot about this in the Great Recession, like we we, we saw that everybody's like, oh yeah, so when you look at the Great Recession, on average, you know, storage was at whatever it was, 80% occupancy, right? They're like, man, that was was only a 10% drop. Like 10% drop in revenue is not that bad. And it's like, look, hold on here. Just because occupancy went down, you know, from let's say 90 to 80 percent, and occupancy did really well during the Great Recession, that didn't mean gross revenue did. Like that 80 percent was filled with people that weren't paying. Their rates were way lower. They were giving concessions. You actually had a 50 percent hit on gross revenue. So even though they were eight, they lost 10 percent in occupancy. 
they lost 50% of their gross revenue. And your expense ratio is, is fixed. It's fixed. It's, it's the same. So now it's 40, 50%. Exactly. And when you look at that, and what, what we saw was that uh, self-storage lent itself very well to that occupancy number. And people really got tied up on that. Like self-storage really lent well to where you could fill it up and have a high, high occupancy number, which I think made people assume that the revenue was much higher than it was because we can give concessions, because we can drop quickly. So when we have inflation, right, we can accelerate the revenue because of the short-term contracts. We can move those things so quickly. We can do add-ons. We have super high demand. Well, I'm going to double my sign-up fee now because I only have three units and they all want them, right? Well, the same thing, though, happens on the other way. We give those concessions, people stop paying, we start filling up at any cost, right? Where you don't generally see that in other asset classes, right? If you have a strip mall, you don't go 50% of the people aren't paying, right? That's not how it generally works. And it's like you get the vacancies, you kick them out, then they can adjust their leases and they can do different things and a multifamily, right? But storage, it's just so easy to fill up a spot. Uh, first month free, five months free, and all of a sudden, 50% of your tenants aren't paying and, and, and you look full. So you have to remember that when you're stress testing and decelerating in different uh, type environments. Just because you have a drop or an increase in occupancy does not mean that same effect happens on the revenue. It doesn't. It's a big change. And so this idea, this pro forma, and this idea of underwriting for this and making sure right you you, you can do it. and this playing these games where people are like we've never seen occupancy drop this much so my revenue will be fine right you really do got to look at it a holistic approach because then too lots of times during that time you see other problems where then now I have capital expenditures well now I have capital expenditures and I got to do capital expenditures and it may be $250,000 but the cost of my $250,000 just doubled during the same time so now the 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 capex is twice the cost. The $250,000 didn't change, but it's now at 9% interest rate. So all of a sudden, I have to do it, but it cost me twice as much to do those things. All meanwhile, while you're decelerating. Right? You need to look at those things, and, and you need to think about those things when you're looking and stress testing. So identifying the markets, and how will this work, and how do we make sure that payments are going to be at that spread? The performance are so easy for the brokers to input a whole bunch of numbers, right, and make it look good. I mean, you can just tweak those things and make an outcome that looks incredible all the time. They never tweak it the other way. Instead, what they do is, well, look at it's still good if 10% occupancy drops. Like, well, what about all these other lines that you tweaked on the way up? Why don't you tweak those on the way down? They never do that. Yeah, I think that the lesson to learn out of that is now more than ever building those reserves up front yeah. right so if you're gonna if you're going to build you're gonna expand even buying an asset you got to really have that runway where if things yes. don't work you know you over you're overcapitalized and and we all can probably agree over the you know real estate over the life of our life and our generational wealth the wealth that we create Better. it always is yes. going to make out right but yes. but the guys make the you can make money in the in the down times because you're undercapitalized uh, well other people are undercapitalized yeah. you you have that capital i mean that's really the game right that 100%. we're playing 
So I just, you know, for me, I, I got in light because I, I, I didn't have a lot of partners. I didn't have experience in having, and luckily, the market always continued to go up. But now more than ever, you know, basically, I could just give you a big ballpark number. If you're building a 50,000 square foot facility or 60,000 and you're paying, you know, you're building it for 65, 70 bucks a foot, plus you have another 10 bucks a foot for land, you're around 5 million bucks on that project. You know, basically, you need a million bucks in reserves on that. I mean, and you can finance them sometimes. You know, you can talk to Live Oak and some of these other banks here. They might allow you to do that. But you basically put in your head, I got $500,000 of interest reserves that I can make those payments on that loan for two years plus, and then I have my expenses covered. If I don't lease a unit, you know, I, yeah. can, I can cover that for a couple years. And then you're going to get turnover, and we'll see how it all shakes out with lease up, and that's where, you know, the strong operators survive. But having that, that, that dry powder, that liquid in the account, you know, knowing that you can survive is what's going to that's what's going to help you get through this, you know, maybe turbulent time that that could be ahead. I had a client, and they were uh, this was in, in my benefit days. When you when you walked into their main office, they had a, a I don't know if it was a quote or a saying on the wall right when you walked in, and they said the biggest companies aren't the most innovative; they're not the ones with the best culture. They're not the ones that are the most capitalized. Said the biggest and the best companies are the ones that survive. And, you know, it's really true, and we can overlook that a lot. And the thing about it is, everybody, this isn't like doom and gloom at all. Not at all. And I really mean this when I say most deals that I ever find that aren't successful, they're not successful because of the structure that was placed over the deal. It's not the deal. We went through the Great Recession, we were fine. Right? We you know lots of operators that did. They were fine. I know operators that did, and they raised rents. Right? Um, the ones that get in trouble, though, it's almost it, it, it is kind of self-imposed. Not all the time, of course not. There's always like you're going to do a dud and you're going to do a bad deal that have inputs that had nothing to do with you. We will all go go through that, right? But for the most part, when you start seeing it at mass in the markets, so when all of a sudden you see, you're like this asset class is getting in trouble, right? Well, the housing market got in trouble right, because of what they were doing in the housing market. It wasn't because housing fundamentally lost its value to hold somebody in the home and get rent. No, if you had a good debt product on home and you had a good margin and were getting rent, you survived the recession, right? Now, what happened was the structure, the debt products, how they were buying on that asset, that they all screwed up. Everybody did, right? We all did. America did. The world did. That screw up on the overlay of the asset is what caused the problem. It's how they sold, structured, how they financed, it's how they insured and everything in between. So when you're buying it, just make sure you're structuring it right. And I think that will lend for the short-term fluctuations. And that's really what we're talking, short-term. Long-term here, everybody, we are so bullish, it's, it's ridiculous. But we just want to make sure everybody is bullish and loves this asset because you all do because you're all here so just make sure in the short term though you're fine too yeah and i think the the lesson out of that is is the investor is the asset right because uh, a deal, an investor can f up a, a good deal and a bad deal and i'm watching my mouth because i'm with you and you know i'm being very 
I want to really express myself about this, but the uh, the investor is the real asset, right? So there's yeah. no deal is going to make or break you. It's just who's the guy controlling the deal, you know, at the end of the day. And that's why learning the operations and you getting into the nitty gritty where, you know, this stuff on the surface is a little dry, but uh, it's, it's, it's the actual business. And the operations is where all the money is made because, you know, a, a, an older gentleman, uh, mostly the opportunities if you're starting out and you want to find a good value add deal, you're going to buy from someone that typically his family doesn't want to get involved and they're kind of tired of the business and all this technology sounds great, but they just don't really want to get into that. So, I mean, the, the money's made in the operations, right? The harder, the harder it is to do things, the more opportunity that is there, and the inefficiencies in the market is where the, the real gold is, right? So understanding the little nuances where you don't have to be an operator, everyone in here doesn't have to be an actual management company, but understanding the ins and outs of the management in the beginning, learning the business. I mean, this is where you can step in and, and really get creative because at that stage, you know, now you know, okay, this is how, these are the levers that I can, can pull on to actually add some value to the deal. And these people have no interest in it. There's just not, it's not what they want to do. So it's, it's really where, you know, if it was easy and we could all just buy a facility, hire a third-party manager, know we're going to get our $14 rents and know our cost basis, we could all make money, but then that's too efficient in the market, right? Yeah. And that's where we, we take risks, and that's the beauty of America and the beauty of being an entrepreneur is you figure out where you find your edge, where you wedge yourself into this scenario. You try to see ahead of the, the trends, where there's going to be demand, and then you get in there and you build a relationship with people. And then you guys got a great team. You come in there with a great team. You polish it up. You you run a better business, and that's any way that anyone that, that wants to do it. I mean, this is not passive income, right? I mean, you're you're the guy that's been saying it forever. This far from passive. So we could we, we can get into that whole part of the business, or, or we could talk about REITs and other things. No, it, go ahead. No, I was going to say. I mean, we've talked about opportunities. We've talked about somewhat of a threat as far as structure. What other threats are you guys seeing? Let's talk threats. What are you seeing in self-storage? What are you guys looking at? What questions are you asking? So for, for us, our advantage, our competitive edge, has been in, in the smaller rural markets or the suburban markets. So we, we have built and bought in more dense markets. So the things, the attributes that I've seen through the assets over the years now is, is visibility still matters. Like, you know, being, you know, if you can have a co-tenancy of other, you know, Walmarts, tractor supplies, Dollar Generals, other commercial traffic around you and, and retailers, that's a big plus. You know, no matter, you know, Google's strong, but at the end of the day, that's a very important attribute. And if, if the other thing for us is in these denser markets, the REITs are, are monsters, right? They are beasts right now. They... They are investing a heavy, heavy amount of money into you know, never letting you out of your browser when you're looking at whatever you look at on your phone. So uh, for us, it's, we've done a lot better in markets that have been uh, less competition, so less REITs there. You know, and, I, and we're going to get into, I think, REITs are going to start to come into our markets. But uh, for, for me, um, the, what keeps me up at night is you know, REITs coming in and competing where they're, they're, it's going to cost a lot more money in advertising and marketing and you got to be a lot more nimble where you can't just buy some basic website and get an SEO for $20 a month and you're number one on your, your, your Google there in your market. And then secondly, it's, you know, getting back to, you know, good locations where for us we strayed and we bought some stuff that didn't have visibility and if you don't have the signage, you know, it's just you can't, you can't outwork that unless it's a really good market. Uh, I, we, we'd rather stick to those fundamentals right there. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked, you know, if you remember uh, my rate 
runway that we, we looked at and we talked about. Um, everybody knows that listens to anything we put up, the number one threat to self-storage is self-storage. Um, and I, I still believe that to, to be true today. Um, people talk a lot about outside technology coming in. For me, technology isn't a threat, it's an ally. Um, it's only a threat if you're not using it and if you're not on top of it and being ahead of it. Um, now, what I, I think, though, when I look at threats to um, smaller markets and future, the more exposure that comes in and the more viability you have on the exit cap, I really liked smaller, medium markets because of the rate runways in them like we're talking about. So what happened was, and it... it I completely changed my investing philosophy and strategy about two years ago because there was a, it was a very clear uh, fragmentation in the market. What, it, what had happened was all the capital that was coming in and the prices that were rising and everything, you got to a point where a lot of these markets, you could not put on new inventory because the rents were so cheap. So all of a sudden you had big segments of the United States that was going years without product being put onto the market. Why? Because the product tripled in cost to put on the market, and the facilities that were there were operating on a cost basis that was a fraction. Like You're talking about facilities that were, were built for $15 a square foot, and then all of a sudden by 2020, 2021, you had to spend $80 right, to put it onto the market. And so what happened was the rates were so cheap, no one would put new new product on because it was a losing proposition. And you had these huge swaths of these markets where everybody was full, no new product was coming on. And that's where we started investing along the philosophy of my rate runway, looking at it and saying, okay, I can buy this and I can get whatever that is, $6 a square foot. And I know that we won't see that outside pressure on this market until $12 a square foot because nobody can compete, right, or, or build on it. So that became, there was this rate runway. Then I could buy, get that money on the table, we'd have that rate runway come out, and that's played very well. I was wondering if it, if it wouldn't or not, but even if we look at those markets today that we were in, they were 100% when we got in two and a half years ago, right? Well, they're still 100% full, and they've had no new inventory come on board because it wasn't justifiable. So when I look at a lot of the technology, the REITs coming in, a lot of those pressures, what, we, what, what I wonder is, are we going to see pressure in markets of competitors and new inventory that we have not ever seen before? Is the more you know, third tier markets and second tier markets, um, right? Are, are they gonna start to see pressure from people that can underwrite now, not at a cash flow, but at an exit. Because now I know I can build, and even if it takes me time to rent, or even if I have high, high occupancies, I can build this new product, and I can get a higher, and I don't need the justification of good rates to cash flow because we can exit out. And when that happens, that spread. So when you have a spread between what I can build and what I can sell, that causes a development boom. Right? That's what happened in 2015-16. All of a sudden, cap rates dropped in self-storage below on a national average, right, 6%. And then everybody said, I can build for 30 and I can sell for 80 all day long. Then what happened is cost went up, but then it went to a four cap. Oh, now I can build for 50 and I can sell for 200 
all day long. And the development boom just exploded because of that spread, because I cared about the exit. So a lot of these markets that have good rate runway, right, I worry that people are going to come in, they're going to get pressure, but the disposable income to rent isn't good enough to justify it, and then you can really hurt those markets for a long time. Because at some point, those markets, people, it doesn't matter. You want to you, you charge, you know, 15 bucks a square foot, and people go, I can't afford it. Go to Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you want to charge or not. Even if I need it, I'll throw it in the yard because I literally can't pay for it. And so if you get in that position, that concerns me that as people drop out of the bigger and second tier markets, they're going to go into those markets and they're going to hurt them in ways that it's going to take a long time because those markets don't have big gr growth to you know, really absorb the cost. Now, that's not happening right now. There's still huge rate runways, everything else like that. But that would be a threat that I would look at if I was in a small market. Like if this really changes and all of a sudden we have a boom in smaller markets and we have a boom in people that are wanting to build, package, and sell up like they were doing in mid-tier markets, right? Those markets you can easily get into trouble with. Right. Oh, yeah. And I think the window to your, to your question, Connor, is that the there's a window of opportunity that you guys can't let pass by because I if you've ever built the facility, it seems like after one or two get built in the town, especially if it's in one of those suburban towns, that's it. You know, we're done for a while. We don't you don't create any jobs. You know, we'll get our property tax from you. You'll have you know, we'll make the facade look like the way we want it to look. But, you know, we don't want any more. You did. You know, you just ate up valuable commercial land over the life of this asset. Secondly, you know, every fire chief in every building department, up, oh, you know, IBC code, let's add, slap some more on there, right? You know, more sprinklers, uh, more firewalls, more water retention. You know, the cost to build is just going to go up. So higher barriers to entry are there. So you've got to really wedge your way into this asset class now if you're going to do it because it's going to get more competitive. And then, like you said, the, you know, that the, the consumer can only pay so much at the end of the day. And the REITs, you know, AJ's been saying this a long time, that the REITs are going to come into our markets. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that those... Those, those companies are going to dilute or they're going to d depress our returns. Actually, they validate them, right? They're going to get those, exactly. Their rates are through the roof. They offer a lot more concessions. You can undercut them and you can stay leased up. But you know, in the meantime, you know you got to be aware of of how you operate your business because you know if you're not watching the ball, you know these REITs can come in there and, and hurt you. So you know, but but over time, once they're in a market, once they you know once enough supply is in that market, you know it's very hard to get in there. So you, so you I would say you know sooner than later is when you got to get into the asset. Yeah. And honestly, like when we look at that competition, I mean that's why. We have Store Local. That's why we have Tenant Inc. The, it, it was to empower the individual operators to compete with REITs, that we can market like they can, that we have access to data like we can. We have buying power like they do because we are so nervous about that. And as they go into these smaller markets, right, and even when they went into markets that were I mean, Boise, Idaho, right? So Boise, Idaho was it has been one of the fastest growing markets for like you know 15 years or whatnot. I mean, it was only in the last four years that the REITs could break into it, right? Now they're on a buying frenzy. 
Now we've got four REITs in the market. They're trying to buy everything that they can. They've come down into you know, those markets. Now we see them start to go branch out to others. So they're working. They're spending hundreds of millions on technologies that allow them to go into those markets, right? And then they view it the same thing that we do because we can compete so good in a lot of those markets. Like Our initial strategy for value add was very simple. Collect pay and answer the phone. Yeah. That was yeah. value add. Yeah. And that was novel when you said that to yeah. the market. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. We should collect yeah. our bills and answer yeah. the phone, right? And that was very profitable, right? Well, that, in most small markets, too, that still really exists. Like, that, that's actually still a value add, right? It is. So, you know, but that's changing rapidly, and that won't do it anymore. So, you know, when you look at, like, what we're trying to do with the industry is we're trying to make sure that those tools are provided. So it's like, I don't need to know about it. I don't have to do it. You know, you're talking, but we have the tools to, to compete at a relative level um, as it comes down because they will, they always do. They will. And yeah. And the REITs where, where I think we're nervous about the REITs, it's just on the lease up. I mean, yes. once you, once you got the stabilized asset, I mean, now they're just coming in and saying, okay, your asset's worth twice as much as it was before. But, but if you got a brand new asset five years from now and, you know, four different REITs are competing around you, you know, now and you got to lease it up. I mean, that's where the danger lies. If you guys are looking to purchase your first storage facility, you just might be looking at the SBA loan approach and one of the best and most efficient places to get your SBA from is going to be Live Oak Bank. These people know self-storage. They've been in the industry for a very long time. They're very knowledgeable. You don't have to educate them on the underwriting, on how you're, you're valuing self-storage, any of that. These guys are incredible at valuing self-storage. They know how to underwrite it, and they are a phenomenal solution for you and your financing needs in all things self-storage. Again, Live Oak Bank. When you guys are looking at property management software for your storage facilities, there's a ton of options out there, but no other option compares to Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is going to be your one-stop shop solution that has an amazing amount of tools that you can deploy at your fingertips to maximize the value of your facility, to operate it more efficiently, more effectively. They have an open API where you can back in almost anything you want. You own your data, and it's just an incredible solution. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Link is in the show notes. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. Gotcha. Now that we've talked about threats, let's talk REITs. Let's dive in. What are you guys seeing? What questions are you asking? What are you looking at? Uh, so, you know, just got to talk a few minutes before I hopped on here. Uh, but overall, you know, I think the trend, is, and I know the trend. So we sat down with a lot of the different REITs, and, and uh, one REIT in particular, they're going to be pushing into rural markets. They're going to be doing remote management for an op operators. They haven't really shaken out how they're going to do it. But the public markets are noticing, you know, as we saw the last five years, I mean, there, there's only so much storage you can build in Seattle, in New York, in, in these markets where they just, they don't care. They built at any cost because they knew those markets were, you know, they're, they're urban areas, they're dense, and they're, they're going to be profitable over a long period of time. But on their balance sheet, you know, the REITs, they got to get a return. They got to they pay that dividend. I mean, that's how at the end of the day that that stock price stays alive. Uh, so they are looking at our markets. They're saying, okay, these yields are in, you know, this type of market right here in Coeur d'Alene, or they're in the New England region, or they're in the Midwest, or in the Southeast. 
So they're looking in these tertiary suburban markets, and they want to find a way to go acquire these portfolios of assets. Now, the ones that the REIT that really is ahead of the curve on this, I think, is going to really do well versus the others. And they're going to, the only reason they're going to want to third party manage anyone's facility in a tertiary market is so they can buy it. They, they, they I mean, the management fees are great, it pays the bills, you know, but at the end of the day, they want to own more and more, and this is the way to get yield. So the trend is going to be, because you guys, you're way ahead of the trend. I mean, the, that previous panel, remote operations is here to stay. And the, believe it or not, no REIT has a really efficient remote operating model. And, and we, it, you know, you can get into that sale you were telling me about, and we can, I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. One of the things that you find is all industries, after they consolidate, their earnings potential and power starts dropping. What they do is they, they get bigger, they get bulkier, they're full of admin, and what they're doing is they're writing the returns on the consolidation. We've seen this in every single industry, right? And what the REITs have been doing is as they've been as they've been buying, as they've been consolidating, as they've been growing, cap rates have been going down while revenues have been going up and their stock prices have exploded and they become extraordinarily wealthy. Stock prices trade on a multiple of expectations, right? So you, you, you have a revenue that's coming in and you have your returns, but as stock trades at let's say 20 times, right? Uh, earnings. Well, the reason being is because it's an expectation of growth. That's why when stocks go up, they really go up. When they go down, they really crash. Because you're not, like, your revenue went down 10%, but then the stock market tanks, you know, 30%. Why? Because they're trading at a multiple of 20. So what happens is, as those REITs start to say, so everybody, you know how we've been getting 12% every single year in revenue increases? It's not happening anymore. You know how we've been able to just buy revenue forever, right? Now it cost us twice what it did six years prior to acquire that revenue. And we can't buy as much anymore. And so all of a sudden, that yield and that gravy train that propelled those stock prices, that propelled the wealth, that propelled the dividends and everything, it's maturing out. And they're saying, all right, we have to become more efficient. We have to get technology, right? But we need yield. And I need to acquire. Lots of these companies and lots of this consolidation, they're, they're like, yeah, we get a 12% growth rate. They don't get a 12% growth rate on revenue. They get a 3% growth rate. The rest comes from acquiring. Well, now money costs so much, prices go down, they can't acquire as much. It's a tough spot for these guys to get in. So now they're looking at the largest segment of the industry, which is smaller markets, rural markets, the expectations, they can acquire it at a higher cap rate, they can get good margins and cash flow, there's less competition, right? And they look at their power and they say, man, if I apply that over, whew, we can get really good rate increases. But how do you operate these things? Like, that's the key. That's the part. That was the same problem, remember, everybody, that existed prior to 2008. That's why cap rates were high. That's why the market didn't consolidate. Once they fixed that, guess what happened? Consolidated prices went down, right, when cap rates went straight down, prices went straight up. They bought everything in sight because they'd solved that problem. They're now all working to try to solve this problem. They need to get into markets. They need to get inventory that they don't already have. So many funds, syndication guys, sorry, are buying up everything that they can, right? They're now, the REITs are competing with people they were never competing with just six years ago. It's a, it's a, it's a future problem for them. A maturing industry is not good on your returns. It's not when you're a big player like that. When you're a 
multiple, you know, tens of billions of dollars, a maturing industry is maturing revenue and expectations on them are not matured. They're trading at really high prices and have very high expectations. They're going to do things differently. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that code cracked what you guys are doing here. And, and yeah, if you look at online a couple days ago, extra space just bought uh, storage express in the Midwest, 580 million, 107 facilities and a proprietary software to manage remotely. But as, as this becomes the norm, now the efficiencies decrease, right? Because they can come in there, now they're competing against all of us. So that's another reason this window is here where there's a transition yes. in the industry and in any transition, right? That's where money is made. And, and as it becomes more efficient, and we're getting waved off here, that we uh, can actually you know, make money now. So you, you, it's really important to understand this because it, it, it's not going away, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, COVID just pushed it right to the front and center, and now this industry is completely transformed. Well, and that's the great thing, too, though, about real estate. That's why we love it. You buy it, your major, major expenses are fixed, right? So time, right, that helps, whether it's 3%, 6% growth rate or 10% growth rate on that revenue, right? You don't have a direct correlation with your expenses. So that adds so much to your margin. It, it's so good. It really depends then on that buy. It depends on that entering into the market and then the time frame in which you can get those spreads and go. But that's the beautiful thing about storage because we have so much opportunity to buy so much and force it. You know, we talk about this consolidation, everything else like that, but you got to remember multifamily, it's like 20% of the industry's mom and pop. Everything else is institutionalized. You know, we're still at 55, maybe 60, eh, not probably 60, 55, 50% of the industry is mom and pop. There's a lot to buy for all of us. There's a, more than any other real estate asset class out there. Mobile home parks has probably more mom and pops, but there's less of them to buy. So right now, we all still have this huge runway and all of these assets that we can go buy up. It's just the REITs, the big boys, and everybody are trying to take a piece of the pie. So Work on the execution, the operations, right? Get good deals and survive those short terms up and downs of those markets. And you're going to have better exit strategies when you leave. You're going to have higher premiums as that pressure and consolidation moves down into those markets. And, and be disciplined. Don't stretch right now. That's the worst thing you could do is buy a conversion that's a, a heavy lift. You guys, I mean, unless you're very experienced and know oh, the that's market. That's not a good idea. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Connor. You guys are the pros, but yeah, that, I, in the beginning, you know, anything that's an old building, you got to convert. Anything with a funky layout, anything in really unique markets where you're just in the back corner and it's dilapidated. I mean, you really want the same template, right? Something that you can really, it's going to be a good asset long into the future. It's not always about year one cash on cash, right? Have a bigger view of the business. Never have to sell as your exit right away. You know, just be able to service debt on what you have on operations now conservatively. That's, that's the strong that will survive. This is also good because such a, a common question that we get all the time is, is now a good time to buy? Like, should I get in now? So all the, all the topics you guys are hitting right now is just hitting the nail on the head for so many of those people that I know. I mean, I've heard that question here. We, we hear it all the time, you know, on the podcast, YouTube, things like that. Um, and it is, now is the, the time. Oh, there's always there's always an opportunity in every always. market. And what, what I'm excited about, and I think what everyone here having the industry knowledge and being at the forefront of like what's going on with the trends of storage is wait till debt markets do collapse or wait till there is volatility or wait till money isn't flowing, you know, where it's not. 
There's not so much money chasing assets. Right now, money is just chasing anything that has yield. You're seeing it on every private equity firm in the country chasing any operating business there is. We have one of the best operating businesses in self-storage. I mean, it's a reoccurring revenue business. I mean, where you're getting month-to-month reoccurring revenue and people paying, auto-paying, your, your tenants are. So for us, it's like you're, being here now is, is really, really important on, on what, what is possible for each operator here. You know, and it's, I just keep saying it's not going to last forever, but I think there is a lot of runway here too. It's just, you know, you gotta really do it now before you wait later. We, I, I mean, me and Jeremiah, guys, we, we could, I could just, we could talk for days on end. Um, thank you so much for coming yeah, out. Thank you Thanks for so much, sharing us your knowledge, what you're seeing. Everybody, make sure you get time to, to talk to him, pick his brain, why we've got him here. Um, and, uh, you know, follow him, learn from what he's doing and seeing. I, I can't tell you how impressed I am from the first time that we met and started talking. I was like, you get this. You just get it. And he just exploded. He was buying facilities. He was expanding them. He was doing them right. Um, he made some mistakes like every single person does along the way. And he used that to propel him. I just, you know, uh, I, I think the world of him. He also has a book. You can read the book. Um, go find it. It's on Amazon. The name of the book? Finding Your Edge. That's right. Finding Your Edge. So thank so you again. Find that edge. Find That's your right. edge. Find that edge. <laughs> thanks again, man, for coming yeah, out. Man, hey, thanks for having me. These, you guys are the leaders, man. I'm glad you're at the forefront of teaching people about this business. You, you actually get to the heart of what matters. There's a lot of other people out there where it's fluff or it's all about you know, the, the, the flashy stuff. And, and you know, you, you, I love your content, so I think everyone in here, you know, let's give these guys a hand for what they're doing, right? They're, they're really good. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks, everybody. All right, everybody, that was another great episode with Jeremiah. It was so great to have him on stage at the Self-Storage Income live event. For those of you that went to the event, it was great seeing you there. And you guys got to actually see the production of this podcast live on stage. It was so amazing. But now it's time to read some reviews. Dane Barney says, AJ and Connor have the knowledge you need to run and purchase self-storage. It's an amazing asset class, and we purchased our first facility on an indent and gain the knowledge we need to make it successful right here on this podcast. Thanks so much for the great review, Dane. It was great meeting you at the event, and I'm really glad to hear that this podcast has been a help in you in your acquiring of your first facility. It really encourages us to explore the different topics and information necessary for someone to get started. Hurt by Moom says, great material. The team does a great job of sharing real-world experiences, such great content, but talk a bit about reaching out to connect. I shot an email to the support address of the website, but have not heard back. What's the best way to get in touch? First of all, thanks for the great review. The email on our website is the way to get in touch with our investor relations team. We have now expanded our capacities for responding to emails, so if you have not gotten a response from us, please let us know, give us a call. I'll leave our email and phone number down in the show notes below. So if you want to reach out about a potential investment opportunity, please do so. We look forward to hearing from you. Everyone, thanks again for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.